Welcome to Central Line, the AHA podcast. This is the official podcast of the American Animal Hospital Association, dedicated to simplifying the journey towards excellence in veterinary medicine for every member of the veterinary team. Here's your host, Dr. Katie Berlin. Welcome back to Central Line. I'm your host, Dr. Katie Berlin, and I have two guests with me today. You'll notice it looks a little bit different around here. So here we are uh, on Zoom, and I am joined by Dr. Patty Lathan and Dr. Renee Rosinski. Thank you so much, both of you, for joining us. Thanks for inviting us. Yeah, thanks for having us. It's going to be a fun time. Yeah, absolutely. It's really nice to see two faces and get to have kind of like a round table here instead of just a one-on-one. I love that. So the reason you're both here is actually you both have worked together on two task forces now for us, probably more than that, but two even since I've been here at AHA. We also had an update made to the diabetes guidelines recently. And so uh, we thought it was a good time to get you both in and chat. And I'm so glad we could do this. Before we get started, do you want to give us a little background on yourselves, where you are and what it is you're doing. Uh, Patty, do you want to give us a? Yeah, I could, I could go anywhere from a short bio to a long bio. Uh, I kind of grew up in Texas. I went to Penn for vet school. I was in practice for a year up in the Poconos of Pennsylvania in a little bitty town called Sailorsburg, Pennsylvania. Then uh, I my first DK came in and I fell in love. I already knew I loved it, but that cemented my desire to grow up and I feel like that goes both ways, right? You either love it or you're like, I'm out. It really does. I mean, I would trade DKs for abscesses. That tells oh, there are a lot of people listening to this that'll think I'm absolutely insane. But I, I get it, but I, I love the DKs. And um so then I went and I actually came down here to do my internship in Mississippi State. I did my residency at Purdue and I came back to Mississippi State in 2007. I figured I'd stay here for a year or two, see how it went and now, that was 15 years ago. So I've been here ever since. And I do internal medicine with a very specific interest in endocrinology. If I could do endocrinology full time, I probably would. All right. Yeah. Again, a differentiating factor between veterinary professionals. Would you spend all your time doing endocrinology or would you rather spend no time doing endocrinology? <laughs> That's gives me job security. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> all right. Thank you. Renee, how about you? Yeah, so um, I grew up in St. Louis, Missouri, and went to the University of Missouri for undergrad and vet school. And it was when I was um, part of the student chapter, the feline practitioners group, that I learned that the American Board of Veterinary Practitioners was a thing, and I could specialize in a species instead of a a discipline. I had planned on um, pursuing an internship and then a surgical residency, but the idea of of being a, a the family doctor still and being able to follow a patient from kittenhood to senior citizen was really appealing, and also being able to work somewhere where I had windows and didn't have to be sterile all the time was, was cool too. So um, I, I started working with a, a feline specialist in Kansas City and uh, became board certified in feline practice in 2001 and have been in all cat practice ever since. Um, I love endocrinology as well. I still love a good chunky smelly abscess. 
Um, the beauty of general uh, practice, right? Right, right. So, I mean, I could, there are some things about general practice that, that are, are, are tiring. I like the referrals that I get and I like being able to manage the complicated comorbidity cats, but, um, and I do miss dogs. I love dogs. Um, but cat practice is where I've chosen to focus and I'm in Maryland now. I'm a, um, I'm a practice owner of a general practice and a, uh, radioactive iodine uh, treatment center. And you do have dogs at home. I do. Yeah. <laughs> I do. And my dog, don't tell my clients, but my dog comes to work with me every day and, <laughs> and stays in the office. I love it. it wanders out, but <laughs> I wonder if I were a cat vet, I feel like the Chihuahua would just be allowed in just because like we said, you know, Chihuahua is a cat dog. It's true. I, I do have some, some favorite, um, uh, dog, you know, friends of the cat hospital that come in and uh, I have, I have a weakness for smelly beagles and, um, and (laughs) to be honest, I I feel like it's character flaw, but yeah. yeah. Well, I feel like a lot of people who appreciate cats for who they are, appreciate chihuahuas for who they are, because a lot of the things, you know, that make us love cats, I feel like are what make me love my chihuahua because he's, he, he thinks he doesn't need me. He -hmm. does, but he thinks he doesn't. He's not anywhere near as independent as my cat, but don't tell him that. So they're very ungrateful. Very ungrateful. Very ungrateful. <laughs> uh, well, thank you both. It's it's such a pleasure to have you both here. And your backgrounds are so diverse, and what you're doing now is so different. But you can both weigh in really well on this discussion, which is going to be about referrals and difficult internal medicine cases and all that jazz. But um, I have one question for you because I like to know a little bit of something personal about our guests. Um, before we jump into the hard stuff. And so I was actually at a biscuit place in South Carolina last week. And the way that they call out your order is they, they make you answer a question when you, when you pay, and then they call out the answer to your question. And their question that day was, what would the title of your autobiography be? So I thought that was a good one to ask you guys. (laughs) Um, So uh, Renee, what would the title of your autobiography be? Oh, I, you know, is it my professional autobiography or my um, personal one? I guess if it was my pre- professional cat vet autobiography, I'd say just give more steroids. <laughs> um, but uh, but personally, I think um, I think it'd be called just be nice. I, I think that I think that you know so many of the things that we do, whether it's with our clients or just day to day, if you just took a minute and and trying to be nicer and more patient. I think, I think everything would go a lot better. I don't always do that, but um, I think that's definitely what I would try to do. That's a good one. And also the give more steroids. It's a good one. I mean, really they both. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Patty, what about you? (laughs) Yeah. I actually have been thinking about this ever since you gave me this uh, email. It caused a little anxiety. I asked my wife this morning. She's like, wait, what? I'm like, huh? She's like, no, that's what the title of your autobiography is. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, what? <laughs> I was like, hey, that doesn't paint me in a very good light, but it's true. <laughs> but then I've been thinking about all day, and the best I can come up with is like the Addisonian Labrador goes to a pride parade, but end up chasing a squirrel. <laughs> <laughs> that's about my life right there. I would read hey, that. What? <laughs> I think everyone Wait, listening would read that. <laughs> 
<laughs> awesome. Well, I, I do feel like I know something more about you too. So thank you very much. So let's jump in now. Um, we're talking about internal medicine, um, specifically, especially those tough endocrine cases, because man, those can be quite a puzzle. And I feel like in my experience as a general practitioner, these were harder for me to refer. Cause like you have a dog with glaucoma, you know, and the eye is like red and it's bulging out. You got to give the meds. You got to get that one referred, you know, and have the, the ophthalmologist take over. You know, if you're, you don't have a specific comfort with eyes, that one's a pretty easy one. Right. But I feel like with internal medicine, we sort of carry this weight, like we should be able to handle every single internal medicine case ourselves. Like, oh, it's got diabetes. I know what's wrong with it. I should be able to fix it. And sometimes we just need some help. So, um, but I feel like sometimes there's a little bit of guilt involved there that I didn't just figure it out on my own. And I was wondering if Patty, you had any comments on that? Like, you know, is that something general practitioners should kind of let go? Um, is it a case by case basis or do you have words to share with us there? Yeah. I mean, I, I think it's all of that. So I tell people, I, I don't know how to treat skin disease. Now I could look it up and I could talk to people and figure it out. I don't even remember which vaccines to give and when now, again, I can look it up and I could figure it out and I can give it to them. Um, but that's kind of the same as a lot of veterinarians with endocrine disease. It's not that vets don't know how to do it. It's that it's not necessarily something they do all day, every day. Whereas I'm thinking about Cushing's and diabetes pretty much every day of my life, which I know sounds very sad to some people, but I love it. So I kind of have in my mind, I have the discussion of what I do in my mind. I know how I'm going to monitor. I know how to do all that type of stuff. And I can do it probably more efficiently than a lot of people that don't do that all day. But it's going to take me an hour to figure out what type of vaccines to give. So I, I think that we have to accept that we all have our specialties. And it's really funny because, you know, for the longest time, so many general practitioners are like, well, I'm, I heard students say, I'm just going to be a general practitioner. And I would look at them going, oh my God, what do you mean just going to be a general practitioner? I literally don't know what to do with teeth or skin or vaccines or all or surgery. Don't even give me a scalpel. So it's not just general <laughs> practice. It's, a whole lot of things, whereas I just know how to do one little thing. So I guess I would say, yes, let it go. Send your complicated things to us or even your simpler endocrine things, because it's kind of, again, I already know in my mind how to treat it. And just because you could do it doesn't mean that you should have to. I love that answer. And we can learn a lot too, from seeing what you, how you treat those cases. Um, I know I've learned a lot from just reading referral reports from patients that I've mm -hmm. referred. And um, then maybe that case, a case similar to that, you don't have to refer next time where you can wait a little bit longer and try more things before you do. So I really like that answer. I mean, I like that, especially because it makes me feel better about all the internal medicine cases I've referred. It's, it's so true. <laughs> I wish people would stop poo-pooing on themselves as general practitioners because yeah, your job is harder than mine. Well, and speaking of which, you know, Renee, you are in a really unique position because you are a general practitioner, but you're, you're board certified in general practice. And um, that puts you in a position to sort of feel sometimes like the referrer and sometimes the referee. Um, and I was just wondering for you, do you still refer complicated internal medicine cases to specialists? Do you feel like you can kind of handle what comes your way now and how, when you started your career, like how is it different now than, than it was back then? I can't remember that far back. <laughs> 
I just realized back then just thought I didn't sound too good. I was not making an inference about like, <laughs> you know, I mean, been, things have changed a lot. I graduated in 1994 and, um, and we didn't have the huge network of referral centers that, that we do now. And so, you know, back in the day, um, you know, it was kind of a, this was, this was another possibility for my um, autobiography title, but if not me, then who, you know? So it was, it was like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna have to do this. Um, I have to figure this out because I owe it to my patient to, to do it now is different. Um, And so, you know, there are definitely, I mean, I'm in the, you know, the outer circles of, of DC and Baltimore and Annapolis. And so I have a lot of people who are, you know, or um, a lot of, a lot of uh, different referral centers and different internists and different hospitals. But to be honest, I don't refer um, very many internal medicine cases at all. And it's kind of like what Patty was saying about you know, she does diabetes and, and Cushing's and, and these things every day. Well, so do I. And, um, and I, I see referrals for those things. And Patty and I have talked many times over the years um, about internists and cats. And, you know, I'm sure that there are a lot of internists who love cats and love feline medicine, but I, I get the, the sense from the internists that I talk to um, that a lot of them really don't like working on cats. Cats are hard um, to, to work with. Cat people can be, you know, different than dog people. And, um, and so, you know, Patty, how many cats do you see a week? Um, a few. <laughs> Not a few. Um, you know, honestly, on our schedule, so say, and I know, again, the GPs out there are going to be gasping at this, but for us, we may see an appointment schedule about eight to 10 appointments a day if you include our rechecks and stuff. And maybe two of them would be cats. Okay. So not that many. We just don't see as many. Right. Exactly. So, so, you know, extrapolate that out. She sees 10 cats a week and I see more than that in a day. And a lot of those cats that I see, you know, although we do primary care, um, we do, you know, mostly internal medicine type cases. So, when it comes to volume and frequency of things that we see, I, I think that, you know, a, a, a feline specialty practice is going to see more than an internist in, you know, as a rule, not maybe not always, but in general, I think that's a pretty fair statement. And so, you know, we don't tend to have to do um, a lot of procedures that require equipment equipment that only an internist would have. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's gotten to the point where I, 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 I don't send internal medicine cases. Yeah. And I text Renee sometimes with questions that she yeah. probably thinks are super, super elementary, but I'm like, all right, block cats. I swear I don't do great with block cats. What's <laughs> your secret on block cats? Because they're things that I just know 
cat people know. The other thing about her practice is everybody in the practice, I'm fairly certain, is really good at handling cats. Yeah. It's just what they're used yeah. to doing. And there are no dogs around. And yeah. there's not the Marky Labrador. <laughs> you know, my spirit animal is a black Labrador, but most cats don't really love those spirit animals, um, right. especially in a clinic. So I think there there's something to be said for cat specialists doing more feline internal medicine a lot of times than internal medicine specialists. Not to say we can't, but I mean, I certainly consult with my feline people. Yeah, right. That makes sense. And I, I hadn't even really thought about that as a place this discussion would go because um, I haven't had a lot of cat specialists close to me where I've practiced. And so I haven't had that option to refer to them, but a lot of people do, you know, I'm sure that there are a lot of cat practices out there that sort of fly under the radar um, with other general practices nearby because they don't necessarily think of them as referral hospitals. But of course it makes sense, especially when it comes to just knowing how to speak cat, <laughs> that it's a cat hospital would have a leg up there. Cause you're right. I mean, your average veterinary teaching hospital, especially is not a particularly cat hospitable place just from the volume and, um, you know, just sheer size of it all. Uh, so that's, that's, that's very interesting and it's food for thought for me, for sure. Uh, I wanted to ask Patty, like just from a purely selfish point of view, and I'm sure a lot of people are wondering too, who are listening, but as a specialist who has pretty much everyone that they see as a referral, what's one thing that you wish primary care vets knew about referring internal medicine cases to you? I, you know, to me, and this is just from looking at a lot of stuff online, I think that a lot of people think that we're judging them more than we are. I, <laughs> yeah, that's you true. know what, <laughs> I tell my students all the time, I'm like, just because the, the owner says that their vet said this or did say this or didn't say that, don't ever trust them. My, my gut is that even though they haven't come in to see me for four months with this problem that I'll bet you the uh, their vet's been trying to tell them to come in here. We saw an Addisonian a while back that the owners swore nobody ever mentioned referral to them. And then I was talking about the case in round one day. And one of the students was like, was this so-and-so? I'm like, yeah, they're like, we had been trying to get them to come see y'all for weeks and they wouldn't come to see you. Um, yeah. And again, going back to, you know what, IMHA or DK or Addison's in your specialty, that's what we're here for. I, I get it. Again, people would laugh at me if they knew what I knew about vaccines anymore or about, oh my God, heartworm preventative. That sounds stupid, but I think a lot of people take for granted the knowledge they have in their heads and think everybody has it. I friends ask me simple vet questions like what heartworm preventative should the dog be on or what um, parasite drug should they be on? I'm like, I don't know. I ask community veterinary services next door and they tell me exactly what to do with my dogs. And that's what I do. So again, we're not judging as like everybody thinks they may be judged. I know there's paranoia that, oh my God, I didn't do everything exactly right. Well, I'm guessing that the owner at that point, when you saw when you saw that animal, that the owner wasn't as motivated to do all the diagnostics and that's just the way it is. I get it. 
Beringer Ingelheim Animal Health, the maker of ProZinc, Protamine Zinc Recombinant Human Insulin, is a proud sponsor of AHA's Central Line podcast. Beringer Ingelheim is proud to support veterinarians throughout their careers. Their Veterinary Scholars Program, established more than 30 years ago, introduces veterinary medical students to biomedical research. In addition, they honor their commitments to DEI through the support of Diversify Veterinary Medicine Coalition and Pride VMC. Finally, Beringer Engelheim supports the well-being of veterinary teams through their support of Not One More Vet and the Veterinary Hope Foundation. The views expressed in this podcast are not necessarily associated with Beringer Engelheim Animal Health USA. Visit bi-animalhealth.com to learn more about Beringer Ingelheim Animal Health and their products. Yeah, that's accurate. We do we do think that you're judging us all the time. But, you know, it's like walking into a room and people are talking to each other and you immediately like, are they talking about me? But of course, you know, you're there for the pet and the client. And even if we did leave something out of the workup, I mean, like you say, this is your bread and butter is dealing with these complicated cases. And for us, we might've had you know, been backed up an hour with vaccine appointments that were mad because we were seeing this sick pet and maybe we forgot to do that test. And you're not, at least you in particular, are not being judgy about that. And I appreciate that. <laughs> um, Renee, so you are in the sort of straddling that divide of, you know, specialist and also GP. And so for you, I wanted to ask you, is there anything that you wish specialists knew or that you could tell specialists about general practitioners and what their experience is like when they're trying to refer someone? Well, I think, you know, I can, I can speak to both sides of that because I, you know, I am, I am a specialist too, but I think, you know, when, when I'm referring things, you know, in general, the, the specialists around me are fantastic and they communicate well and, um, and in a very reasonable amount of time and, I think, you know, one thing that, that I would, um, would say is that, you know, don't to the, to the, to the discipline specialists, don't discount the little things that we say, you know, we know these pets, we know these clients and we know, you know, that there are some little idiosyncrasies of this case. And, and I think that, you know, all of us, when we don't, have such a relationship with the pets and the owners and the case in general, you know, it's, it's easy to focus in on one particular thing. And, and I think that we see this in human medicine too, you know, you go to the cardiologist and they look at your heart, you go to um, the neurologist and they do neurology things. And it's very hard to look at the entire patient sometimes. And I, I, you know, I, I feel like, Sometimes that that happens when we send things off, um, you know, to a to a discipline specialist. Um, but you know, as far as like what Patty said, when people refer things over, you know, just tell us everything, even if it seems like you know you think you screwed up. Um, you know, we, then, right? <laughs> we need to know that we need to know what you've tried just, you know, when you've been throwing spaghetti at the wall, we need to know all these things. Um, Cause it helps us get a big picture of what's going on. And, um, and that's, it's cool. It's fine. You know, we're, we're part of this team. I mean, the specialist, the general practitioner, the client it's to me and the, and our, and our support staff, they're all equal. They all play an equal and different role. 
So we have to know everything. Yeah. The other thing to make sure that referrings know is that hindsight's 2020 and we get that hindsight every time. And sometimes as Renee was just talking about knowing that they've already tried 18 different treatments that didn't work, that helps us rule out a lot of different diseases. Or sometimes again, you go to the owner who refuses to be referred, the dog or cat was on steroids and then an infectious disease pops up and you're like, oh, well, the reason I got it is because of A, it's been longer and it's been going on for a long time. And B, the dog had steroids. You try tried to tell them not to, but then they decided the last minute after you already tried the steroids, hey, I'm going to refer, even though you told me, you know, the vets told them, hey, this is going to screw things up. Yep. That's, yeah, it's very real, real life situation right there. Like three cases just popped into my head just off the bat. So definitely. And it's nice to hear that, um, that, you all are so understanding about the circumstances that you know, because it's not like clients go to you and suddenly become easy, right? So, <laughs> um, so I wanted to know too, like there's so many parts to the referral process. I mean, there's the client care team that's giving them the information for how to contact you, or there's the technician who's giving them the information in the room that we think referral might be important, or the associate who's thinking about referring a case, you know, and they're not sure if it's time to refer all that stuff comes together with the client's attitude about referral with their finances and with the communicate their communication style. But do you feel like there's one thing you can pinpoint that contributes the most to how a referral process goes? Like, is it money? Is it a great workup by the primary care team? Is it a certain type of communication between everyone involved? Um, yeah. I mean, I think it can be all of those a great workup by the referring is great, but sometimes that makes my job a lot harder. Right? You know, I, I know when they come in and they've already had X, Y, and Z done, I'm like, all right, I'm going to have to scratch my head a little bit on this one. Um, it is helpful when they come in and the referring vet has said, okay, well, they may have to do this and that. And sometimes, for example, they come in to me and I will say I'm in a special situation where I'm in an academic center. We have a lot of specialists here. We have radiologists and sometimes you know, dogs come in and for example, their vet's already done a, an ultrasound on them. And, you know, me doing ultrasound versus my radiologist doing an ultrasound are two very, very, very different things because I suck at ultrasound. And I kind of use that scale knowing, you know, there's some referrings I already know they do a lot of ultrasound and such. So they're probably really good, but then I've still got my boarded radiologist over here. So on one hand, the owners being aware that some things may be repeated. And obviously we use whatever wording we can to try and make it and not say, well, I don't <laughs> trust this. I, I promise. It's like, well, yeah, but our machine is a gajillion dollars. And these radiologists, that's all they do all day in addition to reading films is do ultrasound and that type of stuff. But just so the ref the owners sometimes know that there are some things we may repeat. In addition to that, I mean, communication really is key. Um, and to what Renee was saying, the referring veterinarians have known a lot of these owners for years. And I can't tell you how many times just part of it is before I even go into the room with the owners, I can tell the owners are very pathologically almost, and I feel bad for the vet sometimes, pathologically attached to their veterinarian. And I'm like, before I go talk to them, I'm going to talk to the vet 
and talk to them about what my plan is. Make sure that A, they agree with it and B, they don't think the owners are going to like run out of the room screaming when I come up with this. Because sometimes what will happen is I'll go into the room and they're on the phone with the vet when I walk into the room before I've even talked to oh, them man. Yeah. or before they make a decision, you know, they're like, well, let, let us talk to it for about it for a second. And it turns out we go back in and they just called their referring. And if I haven't already told the referring what I'm thinking, then that poor vet's on the other end of the line going, I have no idea what, uh, <laughs> what they just recommended. And of course, we're playing the game of telephone. What the owner tells the vet that yeah. we recommended may be very different than what we actually said on both ways. So that the other thing is, um, so number one, definitely good communication. The referrings often know things we just don't know um, about the history of the owner and the animal. And the other thing is uh, records. And I hate this. I know vets are so freaking busy these days, but getting us the complete records is super useful. Um, if I don't have the records from the ACTH stem, the Lotus decks, when I'm getting sent a patient that may have Cushing's, then I'm going to be calling up, but I don't want to repeat those tests because obviously they cost a lot of money, but um, I, I need records. So it comes down to really communication a lot for me. Now money is good, but money doesn't necessarily always make the difference. Lack of money you know, when they don't have any money, obviously, sometimes that is inhibited. And if the referring doesn't tell them ahead of time, hey, this might be costing you a couple thousand dollars and they get to us and are like, well, I thought the visit was $140. I'm like, yes, for me to say hi. (laughs) (laughs) But that doesn't usually happen. Of course, sometimes owners come in saying that their vet didn't tell them how much it was. And you talk to the vet, they're like, oh, I told them. Yeah, I told them they were trying to swindle you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's really interesting that you say that about um, about if they're very attached to the vet, you want to talk to that vet, even sometimes before you go in the room. And I have in the past called specialists and said, "Hey, can I just talk to you about this case real quick that I'm sending you?" And I always really appreciate it when the specialist has done has gotten on the phone with me and listened, because usually in those instances, I'm also a bit pathologically attached to that pet. Like I. <laughs> heard some pets that like I have a sign behind a picture behind me. Um, that was a goodbye present from one of my favorite patients ever, um, who beat like a really horrible cancer. And I, I wanted to talk to that oncologist about that dog because I wanted him to know like how amazing that dog and those people were. And that, you know, I wanted to know everything that was going on, not because I was being obsessive, but because I just cared a lot, you know, and, um, and that made me feel really good that he got on the phone with me and that I could tell the owners that we had talked because I knew they weren't crazy at all, but I knew that they would feel good about that. Um, but, you know, even in human medicine, if I know a doctor that I'm seeing has talked to another doctor that I trust, that makes me feel good and special. So um, that's a really, that's an important point. Um, Renee, what about you? Do you feel like, um, like there are certain things you see at your end, you know, when people refer to you that make the process go a lot more smoothly? I mean, I think, you know, having, having the, the records like Patty said is, is huge. I mean, I, you know, if I get, if I get a weight that the last weight was three years ago, that really doesn't help me too much. And I see all these you know, these times these cats have come in and, and not, you know, really had 
full exams and um, not always. I mean, we get some really, really great referrals too. I think, I think one of the things that's important both as, you know, someone who's seeing referrals and, and sending referrals is to make sure that the clients have, have reasonable expectations. I mean, I think a lot of times when, when you refer, like if I refer to an oncologist or, or if somebody refers something to me, it's hard for people sometimes to, to have realistic expectations. I mean, sometimes the, the, the pet just has something bad, you know, and, and we can't, we can't fix it. We're not, you know, we don't have, we don't have all the answers just because you, you know, drive two hours and have $5,000 doesn't mean that we can fix it. And, and I think that that's important for, for clients to know. And I think it's also important to, um, for referring vets to, to not tell the clients what the referral vet is going to do. You know, maybe once we do that exam, we don't need to do um, whatever that test is. And, um, you know, so that can create a lot of tension sometimes. And, and, and it's a kind of a time expenditure and, you know, the conversation that we don't necessarily need to be having and you know, why we're not doing something. Yeah. Um, you know, well, that's <laughs> what my vet told me you were going to do. Well, yeah, okay, that's a fair great. point. <laughs> You know, um, so I think, you know, setting those expectations that you know, you're asking for help and this opinion is, is valuable. And, and then, you know, also on the you know, veterinarian side, setting that, that referral doctor up for success too. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, and I also, you know, this, this podcast, we like to think a lot about the whole team, you know, we obviously in a referral process, the veterinarian is making the decision to you know, to consult or, or refer, um, to a specialist and, you know, the person at the other end who's doing the evaluation is a specialist. So that's a veterinarian thing, but we all know that veterinarians would be zero without all of the other, um, team members that do all the stuff. <laughs> and so I was wondering, you know, when it comes to client care and technician teams, like what can they do to help that referral process go as smoothly as possible? I know sometimes they might feel a little bit powerless as they sort of watch these dynamics unfold and then the patient disappears and sometimes they don't hear about them again. How can they stay involved in the referral process and feel like a little bit more fulfilled when a case moves on? <laughs> I'm, here going, I'm gonna let Renee handle that one. She it's a tough one, right? It's, of the two of us. it's a tough question. It is a tough one. And I think, you know, so I think before the referral, you know, having our nurses and our our client services person um you know talk about just just kind of empathize, you know, it's hard to be a patient. It's hard to go somewhere else, it's hard to go somewhere new. Um where you you don't have that same relationship and comfort level. And so I think, you know, making sure that that when that conversation happens, that the the owner knows that we're still part of the team. You know, we're not getting rid of you. Um, we expect to hear back. We expect to continue to be a part of this whole process. We're just getting another another prong. We're getting another person to help. And then I think when the, when the information comes back, I think our staff, especially is 
is potentially really good at translating what's going on, um, you know, with, with guidance from whoever the, the primary care doctor is, I think that, that we can utilize our staff for things like that. And, um, you know, how, how can our staff make it better for the people we're referring to be timely and send the records, you know, as soon as we know and make sure that they're complete and uh, that there's contact information on there. And, um, but I, I really think that once, once the referrals out the door, our in-house staff for the primary care, we kind of, we kind of revert back to family a little bit, you know, because like you said, when you sent that, that dog to the oncologist, you know, you, you're sending a part of you and our staff feels like that too. So as much as we can just be there and be supportive um, and then making sure that, that we, you know, we know that that, that pet is going to be wanting to come back in a certain amount of time for rechecks. So we need to make that happen. You know, we're busy, we have full schedules, but for us to be successful, we have to, we have to follow directions too. I love that answer. That was a great answer because you're, you're so right. Like when that client's sitting in the room and thinking, holding the brochure or whatever to the referral hospital and the team has left the room and they're kind of getting their stuff together to go. And they're thinking, Oh my gosh, like this seems like a really big deal. Um, but if I'm getting referred to a specialist, like he must be really sick and I don't know what to expect. And I don't know those people and they don't know him. And just that, that empathy from the team, because we've all been that client too. I mean, I, my dog ate poisonous mushrooms one time and he was, he was in critical care for four days and I've never seen an ALT that high before or since. And, um, I was terrified, you know, and I knew all the stuff, like I knew what they had to do. I just want to do it myself. But um, I was so scared for him and just being in that situation and knowing what those people in those seats are feeling like is so powerful. Yeah. Um, Well, I I have just one more question for you because I forgot to ask it earlier, but I always wonder this. Um, Who follows up? So say, you know, the pet has to have blood work in three weeks and they come to our hospital, but you need the results. Do you follow up with them about blood work if they haven't been into your hospital to see them? I always feel a little bit like two ways about that, you know, because I know you are going to need to weigh in on it, but they're also getting it done at our hospital. You're not getting any revenue from that. So um, how should we be handling those follow-up tests and things that don't come to see you directly? I would say I generally prefer if basically whichever vet did the follow-up work to be the one talking to the client. Now, certainly if it's an ACTH stem or whatever. Absolutely. Call me. We'll consult on it. I'll, you know, talk you through what to do with it. But I prefer that the, again, if you did the blood work, then you call the owners back. Now, um, and how frequently um, they need to come in to see us depends. Um, I mean, if you've got an IMHA, for example, and they're getting blood work every two weeks, and it's, I have in my head already exactly what I want done, then I can follow that out over the phone for a long, for months, helping um, wean down the drugs. But at the same time, you've got the diabetic or cushionoid animal or a diabetic cushionoid animal, then it would be nice if we could see them a little bit more frequently, maybe every Please. three months or so. Yeah. 
Please see them. Or every time. (laughs) I'm in an unfortunate situation where at least when I'm in Starkville, Mississippi, some of our owners come from two or three hours away. So it's really frustrating. I think everybody in the situation would rather I see them for follow-up, but it's just not reasonable to come in every single time. But maybe every three months or however often, if something significant changes, it'd be ideal for us to see them before we keep providing input on it. Because I can talk to you over the phone till we're both blue in the face. And I sometimes forget to ask a very important question that I only realize when I see the owner or see the animals in front of me. Yeah, I, I think having the primary care doctor, if, if we're helping interpret the blood results, if the information still needs to come from the primary doctor. Yeah. That makes sense to me. Um, well, I think that's good. Cause I, I, I feel like that question just had to be asked, you know, <laughs> it comes up in pretty much every single internal medicine case that gets referred. So I figured we would just get it out there at the end. So everybody could hear it. <laughs> I mean, I'll be honest. Part of it for me is if I haven't talked to the owner in a month or something, there are stupid little things. I mean, I, I forget people really quickly. And then I, they say things to me on the phone and I just feel awkward. Like, oh man, did I just say the wrong thing? Am I remembering the wrong person? It sounds stupid, but there's some anxiety associated with that for me. That's totally fair. I mean, you're seeing what you're, you might have three Cushing's patients to call back that hour, you know, whereas I'm like, oh yeah, that's that dog I'm working up for Cushing's because there's one, you know, so that makes total sense to me. And I never thought of it that way before. So. I appreciate that. And Renee, you know, I often will be think, oh, I have to call that cat owner back. <laughs> and I don't think. <laughs> Me too. Would, yeah. <laughs> but that does not help as a differentiating factor for you. So, right. Right. Um, well, um, this has been so much fun chatting with both of you. Uh, I really appreciate your perspectives and some really good insights from kind of the other side of the referral process for me anyway, as a general practitioner. And I know a lot of our um, vets and vet teams listening We'll appreciate that too. Sometimes we just forget that there's another viewpoint um, that isn't ours. It's just good to hear about it. So well, thanks for inviting us. Thank you so much. Yeah, um, it was fun. Yeah. We'll and come back and talk about the endocrine guidelines. Excellent. Yes. yes. We could talk about endocrinology all day, right? Between the right. two. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> I'll just sit here very quietly. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> all right. Uh, thank you, Dr. Patty Lath and Dr. Renee Rosinski for joining us on Central Line. And for those of you listening and watching, thanks for tuning in and we'll catch you next time. Thanks for listening to today's episode of Central Line, the AHA podcast. If you love what you hear, please take a moment to leave us a rating and review. For more resources to help you simplify your journey towards excellence in veterinary medicine, we invite you to visit aha.org. That's A-A-H-A dot O-R-G.